0: people back here at a moment in the summer where I didn't think I'd be with you, sitting out there in the Atlantic, upside down in my kayak. (laughs) I say out there in the Atlantic, I was about three metres from the foot of the cliff. (laughs) I say thinking about you, never crossed my mind. (laughs) My thought process was something like, I appear to be upside down. How do I get out of this thing again? (laughs) New information. I I think I've got to the point where my disk is full. Do you have this feeling? In order to remember a a new piece of information, I have to forget something that I already know. This gets me into a lot of trouble at home. We have a lot of conversations that include the phrase, I've already told you that, Kevin. Get home from work, Mel says. Did you remember to pick your medication up? Medication? I told you about that at breakfast, Kevin. But you know how it is, Mel. If I'd remembered my medication, I'd have forgotten one of my favourite jokes. (laughs) And laughter's the best medicine, which wasn't funny upside down in the Atlantic. We're uh, we're carrying on from where uh, Rupert so wonderfully... Um, was speaking last week in Acts. Uh, and actually, we have quite a long reading. So we are um, in Acts chapter 23. I'm going to pinch the last verse of uh, of Rupert's reading. Sorry about that. Um, we're going all the way through uh, chapter 24. So it's quite a long reading. But I want to read it all because um, in terms of what I've been thinking about as I've been reading this passage, it's not that we're going to pick up on a particular word or sentence. There's a couple of things that are just, this is just what I've understood about Paul reading this passage again. And one of the things that I love about reading the Bible is it doesn't seem to matter how many times you've read a passage, and I haven't read this for a while, I'll be, that's my confession for the morning, one one of many probably. Um, But just what's happened to you in life, you know, what you've experienced since you last read it, the things that you've learned, the connections that you've made, the stuff that God's been talking to you about, it just it means you see new things, don't you? As well, of course, as, uh, is a living word. So it shouldn't surprise us when we read it that new things come out. So, um, but I have had the advantage over you of having read it several times. So I'm going I'm to spoil the surprise, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be thinking about before we read the passage. And that gives you a, a chance, hopefully, as we go through it. Just to think, oh, I can see where he gets that from. We are going to be thinking about uh, Paul's confidence, his character, and his cohort. Obviously, I'd normally say friends, but I I was taught to teach by a three-point sermon man. Alliteration, if at all possible. So, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. I'd love to know how that worked out, by the way. More than 40 men were involved in this plot, They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow, on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was in Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in their accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense." you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, "'Felix was afraid and said, "'That's enough for now. You may leave. "'When I find it convenient, I will send for you.' "'At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, "'so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. "'When two years had passed, "'Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, "'but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, "'he left Paul in prison.' So, long reading. And as I said, when, I, when I'm uh, thinking this morning about, about Paul and his confidence, for example, it's not because Luke has specifically said Paul was confident. It's not we can't pick a, a verse out, we can't choose a word and say, it, it specifically says he was confident. This is my interpretation. Uh, as we read this story. So you can disagree with me. That's okay. I've been wrong plenty of times before. But to me, Paul seems like a pretty confident man in a pretty testing and dangerous situation, which in itself is not unusual, of course, because we meet lots of confident people, don't we? I know lots of confident people. People can be really confident about what they know. People can be really confident about what they are able to do. Some people's confidence is absolutely justified. Some people's confidence, less so. I like talking to people who know their stuff and are confident about it, because for me, every day is a school day. If people can shape my thinking, influence my decisions, help me make better choices, I want to hear what they have to say. I'm not so interested when people get their facts wrong. That's just confusing. I do that a lot. Other people are really confident about what they can do. Sometimes justified. I want them on my team. I want to work with those people. Sometimes not justified. I've made the mistake of asking for help from such people. I had a friend once who was very confident about his ability to help me in the garden. That was a mistake. Some of my prize flowers resigned the party whip and disappeared. <laughs> Worst affected part of my garden, Rupert, the iris border. <laughs> you struggled to mention Brexit last week. You felt like that was, I just wanted to dive right in there. Anyway, I'm still living with the consequences of this friend's help in my garden, but fortunately for people like me, who can't remember anything and are of no practical use whatsoever. That's actually not the kind of confidence that Paul has. Now, we might think he's got every reason to be confident about what he knows, because he knows a lot. But when Paul speaks about what it was like going to new places, preaching the gospel, what he says might quite surprise us. In 1 Corinthians, for example, chapter 2, He says to the church there, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul isn't confident about his ability. He is confident in who God is. So he's not reliant on what he knows and how well he can argue. He's reliant on the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God. Jeremiah says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I love that picture. I love that picture. When we put our confidence in God, we are like a tree... Rooted by a river, roots going deep and far. So that when the storms of life are blowing, we're not blown over. And when we walk through trouble and hardship and testing times, we don't wither and die. We always bear fruit. We are always a blessing to the people around us. Because our confidence isn't in what we know or what we can do or what great looks we have. (laughs) anyone confident in what great looks they have. It's not in our job or our wealth or our influence. It's in God. And that seems to me to be the kind of confidence that Paul is walking through this situation with. Now, part of that is because he has had years of building relationship with God. He's had years of understanding the truth, of seeing the power of the Spirit at work. He's had years of having God fulfill promises, prove himself faithful over and over again. He's had this amazing moment in the prison cell where Jesus has come and stood next to him and said, you've testified about me in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Paul is holding on to this promise. When he writes about Abraham in Romans, he speaks about a man whose body is as good as dead because he's about 100 years old, but Abraham didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that he was able to do all that he had promised. If our confidence is in who God is, then what can go wrong? If it's in ourselves, everything can go wrong. But God is sovereign, all powerful, all seeing, all knowing, faithful. Mel and I used to do a bit of work in a care home, and uh, there was this chap in this home who used to wear a sweatshirt that said, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. I've always loved that. But it's not the kind of confidence that just means, well, whatever will be, will be. So when his nephew comes to him and says, Paul, there's a plot against your life, Paul doesn't spend the night sitting in captivity singing, "Kay, Sirrah, sirrah." It's not a kind of fatalist confidence. Well, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to worry about anything. God will make it happen. No, Paul is really decisive. He takes proactive, positive action. He calls the centurion. We need to get this dealt with. Does that make sense? You see, I think sometimes we just sit back and say, well, God said it, so I don't need to do anything. That's never the case in the Bible. God instructs us how to live our lives and holds us accountable for how we live our lives and the choices and the decisions that we make. So we can be confident that God will do all that he's promised and we walk faithfully and make good decisions and choose paths of righteousness. We're not just going to sit back. So my first question this morning is, where is your confidence? Now that might be on the grand scheme of things, have you ever put confidence in God? And if it is, speak to the person you came with, talk to the person next to you. It's really easy to make that choice. More specifically, in the situations that you are going to face this week, where is your confidence? In that challenge that you have at work, in your personal finances, in in a relationship that you might be in, where is your confidence to see this through and walk through it well. Is it in what you know? Is it in how persuasive you can be? Is it in what you're capable of doing? Is it in the 100 to one outsider in the 315 that you this afternoon? Because it might as well be. Or is it in God? Who is gonna see you through that challenge? Who is gonna see you through that time? Where's your confidence? Okay, the second thing that really um, just came through to me about Paul in this passage is his character. And there's a certain amount of that that we can read directly from it because we can see in the way that Paul deals with his situation, which is quite a scary situation, let's be fair. I, I, um, you know, I've had people throw the odd punch at me and, bit of verbal abuse. I've, 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 never been, um, I've never been as close to death as Paul was. It's pretty frightening. He had every right, in my opinion, to be quite angry with the people who were falsely accusing him. But you don't get that sense, do you? You don't get the sense that Paul carries any kind of bitterness or resentment. You don't get the sense that Paul is out for revenge in any way. His words seem full of peace and gentleness and truth they, all of that speaks to his character. And when other people write about him, they seem to speak about his character too. In the letter that's sent to Felix, there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. He hasn't done anything deserving of this situation. When Tertullus is presenting his case, he has to twist the truth to get the semblance of a reasonable charge. And Paul is able just to speak gently, calmly, truthfully. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. This is the simple truth. There is no charge against me. And even when he's offered the opportunity to get out of this situation by bribing an official, he doesn't take it. So there's plenty here, I think, to speak about Paul's good character. And I think this is massively important for us. Character. Good character is hugely important. Because we were saved so that God, through the power of the Spirit, could recreate in us his own character. To restore human beings created in the image of God is to restore human beings who are full of the great character traits of God. That we are truthful, that we have integrity, that we are full of love and grace and mercy and righteousness and patience and kindness and peace. That's the kind of character that God wants to create in us. That is why we've been saved so that the earth will be filled with his glory, because we are in his image, like him. So important that we adore God for his great character. I think we have a little virtuous circle when we begin to adore the character of God, See, I think the more that we adore him and worship him because he is holy, because he is perfect, because he is just, because he loves righteousness, the more we start to value those things. And the more that we value them, the more that we adore him for them. So it starts by being purposeful in your own prayer life, in your own worship, in your own home, driving in your car with your friends. Be purposeful about reminding yourself about who God is, how holy and perfect he is. Now, we we can adore God for what he does. God does amazing things, creator and sustainer of the universe. There are miracles there for which we we can praise him. But a lot of what God does, well, all of what God does, actually, he does what he does because he is who he is. So we start with who he is. That seems to me to be a great starting point. When Moses is at the burning bush and asks, who shall I say uh, sent me? God just says, I am who I am. This is who I am. We love God for who he is. Now, we might love what he does. But fundamentally, we love him for who he is. And I think we have to teach ourselves that. So that when when we are together at times like this, A large portion of our time is best spent adoring God for who he is. Our prayers should reflect that we love his character. I honestly believe those of you who have prophetic gifts, if you are filling your heart and mind with the character of God, the prophetic gifts that you bring will reflect the character of God and will speak into that issue. It's really important that we spend time, as we did this morning, singing songs whose words adore and worship God for who he is. Faithfulness and loving kindness, what great words to have in songs this morning. so important that we do that. And there's a knock-on effect. You see, as we learn to value who God is, and as we, as we concentrate on that, It creates an environment and a context in which the Holy Spirit can begin to speak to us about our character and who we are and how we reflect him and how better we can reflect him. When Paul writes to the Philippians, he says that Jesus is our example in this. He tells the Philippians, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I I, I don't want to sound old and grumpy. I am both. But humility is not a well-celebrated character trait in our culture. It It just doesn't seem to be. In our celebrity culture with YouTubers and bloggers and with our politicians, humility doesn't seem to be a character trait that we really admire now. And yet the word of God is absolutely clear. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, that is used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is at the very heart of who God is, and yet God is holy and awesome, and eternal, and mighty, and has done everything. And Jesus put all that aside and became a servant and humbled himself to the cross so that you and I could know God as our Father, Jesus as our Savior, the Spirit as our Counselor, so that we could be brought into his family. He did that for us. And as that character is built into our lives in the practical everyday, Paul says you become this, you become children of God, holy and blameless, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. It's when we live like Jesus that people see Jesus. It doesn't really matter what we tell them we believe. When they see it in action, they're persuaded. It's by your love that people will know you're my disciples. We live the way Jesus lived. We live with the character that God lives with. And people will see him and glorify him in response to that. But it takes work, doesn't it? It takes a cooperation with the Spirit. I think it takes a purposefulness. I don't think we inherit godly character by osmosis. I think we have to work at it. We have to ask him, God, how can I be more like you? We can ask that question in a minute. Heads up. How can I be more like you? Before we pray the prayer, I'm going to read you the small print. I don't want to be the kind of salesman that gets you to pray a prayer and then tells you, now here's the downside. Here's the downside. You see, if you ask God how you can be more like him, and he says, I want to teach you to be more patient, you are going to end up at some point this week having to ring British Gas. or virgin. I spent 45 minutes on hold to the city council this week. You know what I mean, though? If God is going to teach you to be more patient, he's going to put you in situations where you have to be more patient than you've been before. And when you're in it, you're going to think, yes, Lord, (laughs) this is what we were talking about. And if God says to you, I want to teach you to be more forgiving Someone is going to offend you. If it's me, we're off to a great start. (laughs) Someone will sin against you. How can you learn to be more forgiving unless you're in a situation where you have to forgive? Okay, so that's the small print. So the question is, do you want to do it? Do you want to be more like God? Let's ask him. Just, I'm going to ask him simple prayer. We'll have a short moment of silence while he speaks to you. And then you can come and thank me afterwards. Father God, we love who you are. How can I be more like you? Okay, I hope that wasn't too painful. But then, we don't know what's going to happen in the week, do we? Are you with me so far? Cool. So, the last thing is his cohort. And uh, we can refer to one particular verse. Because, although he's in custody and in Herod's palace. In chapter 24, verse 23, we read that uh, the centurion was ordered to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. And I just love this about Paul. You see, Paul's ministry is out there, isn't it? It's like he has a home church in Antioch, but actually he's been all around the Roman Empire He's pushing the limits of going places where Christians haven't been, planting churches. I mean, if ever there was a lone worker kind of situation, which gives me nightmares at night, at the moment, to be honest, lone working. I don't know where we are with our policies on lone working, Caroline. A few years ago, I was the only person. We didn't need a lone working policy, it was me. I rang myself at the end of the day to say I was safe. I mean, if there was ever a loan work, you'd think this was it, wouldn't you? It, but it never is with Paul. It never is. Paul always has people with him. He's out there pushing the boundaries. He goes into dangerous places. He faces death. And there are always people with him. Paul always has people with him. You know, it doesn't matter where your ministry is or what you are called to do. It is good to always have other Christians with you. That's why it's great to have people like Caroline on our board of trustees. That's why it's great to have volunteers saying, yeah, we want to help you because I don't want to be a one-man ministry. I don't want to be out there on my own in dangerous places. I want to be like Paul. I want to have a team of Christians around. I want to be part of a group. I've always lived church like this. Mel and I are so blessed in our experience of church as teenagers We had friends who were 10, 15, 20 years older than us. And we could just go around their house. Everybody was in walking distance. We could just go around their house. No one ever turned us away. No one ever said, you know what, you two, we're busy tonight. Find somewhere else. We were always welcomed in. Just living life with other Christians, so important, so valuable. I have a friend who talks about uh, legitimate circles of intimacy, and he uses Jesus as an example. And he says, look, Jesus, he has the 12 disciples. We know that. There are three of them that he seems to be particularly close to. You know, there at the transfiguration, that kind of thing. He has the 12. But he also, he sends out the 72. And there's 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has these kind of circles of relationship. He's very close to some. So important to build those close relationships, isn't that? You know, where you are totally known and vulnerable and, and completely accountable. I have a life partner, 35 years of living life like that together. I have a friend of 35 years standing. Every time I see him, he asks me those questions. How are you doing? How's church? How are your children? How's your mental health? So important. But not every relationship is like that. Some people, we have a working relationship with. We can pass the time of day. It might be a bit more than, you know, Derby so confused me when I first moved up here. People, People greet you in Derby by saying, you all right? I'd say, yeah, are you? And they'd look at me gone out like, that's not the answer. Not bad is the answer. Don't ask me how I am. You know, we have some of those relationships. I must must catch you for dinner sometime. Um, You know what I mean. Some of those are, are fine. But we need people around who share the workload, who share the burden, to whom we can confess our sins, who carry the load sometimes, who support us and love us and encourage us, we provide that different perspective. Whether we find that in our family, in our life groups, you build wider communities. I've had times in my church life where having Christian friends has not been not been difficult. Having, having meaningful relationships with people who are not Christians, that's been hard work. I've had to work at that. We, we, we take choices to do that. You know, when we moved to Ashbourne, um, soon after Mel joined a choir in the town, community choir, just so that we can have friendships with people we're not privileged. Now I find it's the other way around. Now I find I have lots of relationships with people who are not Christians, and I have to work at Christian relationships. I'm so glad the 5 a is starting up again. Now, if you're not into football, I realize 5 a just looks like a lot of grown men running around after a bag of wind, but I can assure you of this. When I am playing, there is no running involved. <laughs> <laughs> I just love having social, non-agendered time with people who love Jesus. I think that's important. Pastor, my feet. (laughs) Paul gets that. Paul always has that. I mean, there's a time when he thinks his life is coming to an end and he writes to Timothy and he feels very alone. But his experience in ministry is: no, we're in this together. Hey, we're in this together. We're in this together. There is a lost world outside these walls. There are people who are desperate, hurting, broken, unforgiven, unloved, who need us to be Jesus for them, who need us to love them unconditionally, who need to understand what it is to be given grace and forgiveness, who need to see righteousness, who need to hear the words of truth who need to experience the power of the Spirit. We don't do that on our own. We do that together. So, it's a long passage, but he's an amazingly inspiring man. In his confidence, in his character, in his cohort of friends, he sets us a great example. No, I don't know what's happening now. Do you know what's happening now? No? Okay. Right, can I, shall I close the meeting? Are we okay? All right. This is a little bit early, maybe. So you can come and sincerely thank me for what God has spoken to you about this morning <laughs> in a moment. Father God, we love you. We love your justice and your righteousness, your mercy, your grace. Lord, you are perfect and holy in every way. We adore you, Lord. We want to be like you. We want to live our life the way Jesus lived his. We choose to be humble, obedient servants to the cause of your kingdom. And we choose to do it together in relationship, brothers and sisters. Thank you for this example. Thank you for your challenge today. Let us be agents this week. Help us, Lord, to be agents this week of bringing in your kingdom and seeing your will being done on this earth, among our friends, just as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Um, yeah, so we're going to finish there, guys. And um, so there is tea, coffee.